0: Good morning church, great to be with you this morning and to open God's word. Uh, By the way, worship team, instrumentalists, vocalists, that was phenomenal. Can we just say thank you for their leadership? I'm still recovering from this. Question as we get started this morning, have you ever had someone make you do something you didn't wanna do? I'm not talking about the talk today, by the way. I remember when I was a little kid, my mom and dad used to always make me do things that I didn't wanna do, things like make my bed, which I didn't get, you know, because I'm only gonna go back to sleep in it that night. And literally, there'd be days when all day my bed would be unmade, be like eight o'clock at night. My mom would be like, David, you gotta make your bed. Like, Mom, my bedtime's nine o'clock. I'm going to bed in an hour, no one's coming over. So I'm making my bed as I'm getting into bed, you know, that kind of thing. Or as a kid, my my dad would make me rake the yard in the middle of the fall, which I didn't get. Why why do we need to rake in the middle of fall? Because there's just gonna be more leaves that fall, and he'd pay me like $5 to rake the whole yard, which was against the child labor laws in our state, but he did it anyway, and so I'm raking the yard, and as I'm raking the yard, I'm just seeing leaves fall on where I've already raked. Just didn't make sense. And one of the things that my mom used to always make me do is that she would make me go to the grocery store with her. And I remember as a little kid, like, why in the world do I gotta go to the grocery store with you? And I remember as a kid going to the grocery store and walking up the aisle one and down aisle two because moms can't just go to the grocery store like normal people, they can't just go get what they need, they gotta walk every single aisle of the grocery store. So we're going up aisle one and down aisle two and up aisle three and down aisle four and the whole time I'm questioning my purpose for being in the grocery store. But on aisle nine, I found my reason for being in the grocery store. Because it's about aisle nine of every grocery store, there's a little thing called the cereal aisle, and on this aisle, my mom would turn to me and say, "David, it's your turn. Go pick out one box of cereal, and that's going to be your box of cereal for the week." And I remember as a little kid just running up and down the aisle, looking at all the different choices. There's 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 Fruit Loops over here, you know. There, there's Lucky Charms over here. There's there's Corn Pops. There's Cookie Crisp, my personal favorite. I remember on one particular trip to the grocery store, I was about to grab Cookie Crisp, when all of a sudden, out of the corner of my eye, a little box of cereal called something like Fiberbrand. Now, normally as a kid, I wouldn't choose Fiberbrand. I thought that was for older people who have issues in their life that we don't need to talk about today. But on, the bo- on that box of, of fiber brand, there's a little advertisement that said something like this, free Spider-Man figure inside. So as a little kid, I'm sitting there thinking, my mom's never gonna buy me a Spider-Man figure, but man, there's a Spider-Man figure in this box of fiber brand, I get to pick out my cereal, and I take the box, I turn it over, and back of that box, that Spider-Man figure looks huge. My little mind starts thinking, if the Spider-Man figure is that big, there can't be much fiber brand in that box. So here I am, left of the choice, fiber brand, cookie crisp, cookie crisp, fiber brand. I want the Spider-Man figure so bad, I just take the fiber brand, I run it back to my mom, I hand it to her, she looks at me and says, Fiber brand? I'm like, yeah, it's my favorite. (laughs) We check out, go to the grocery store. I want to have fiber brand for dinner that night because I want to get that Spider-Man figure. She says, no, you got to eat what I made. And so I I go to bed that night. I am tossing and turning in my bed. Six o'clock in the morning. I am down the stairs. I've got the stool out. I get the fiber brand out. I am jamming my hands in the bottom of the box. And as I jam my hands in the bottom of the box, finally, you know, come across the figure, and I pull the figure out, and I wanna tell you, I've been disappointed in my life. <laughs> but this was beyond that, because that Spider-Man figure is like that big, and it was one of those toys you play with twice and it breaks, and here I am stuck with a whole box of fiber brand. I'm pretty sure that fiber brand's still in my mom's cupboard somewhere, because I ate it, 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 did, it did things to me that we, we don't wanna talk about. I, I, I wanna start with that picture today because I wanna tell you I believe that life is lived on the cereal aisle. That we live in a world that has so many different choices, trying to direct our lives and, and tell us what to do. And, and if you and I aren't careful, we're gonna settle for less than God's best because on the back of the world bo- world's boxes, they're, they're, their figures look huge. And if you and I aren't careful, we're gonna trade the substance of our faith for toys that promise a lot but don't deliver. The big thought today when we address this difficult issue is we were created for more than we have settled for. We were created for more than we're, we've settled for, that, that you and I have a tendency to settle for less than God's best. Let me personalize it here for a moment. The biggest threat to God's best in my life is me. And the biggest threat to God's, life, God's best in your life is you. This morning, we're gonna be in Matthew chapter 19 with a group of people who are dealing with the same kind of issue. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 19. And as you turn there, uh, I just wanna talk to you about the difficult subject. We've been in a, a series called What is True? What's Feeding Your Feed is a question that has continued to reverberate through every talk in the series. And and in this talk, we come to the question, is gender fixed? So as you turn to Matthew 19, let me just kinda tell you what I'm not up here. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a gender specialist. I'm not even a certified counselor. But here's what I am, and this is the way that I'm gonna approach this today and it's gonna go in ascending order. First, I'm an American. I wanna say that because we're living in a world today that has kept us from having civil dialogue on issues like this. And we've gotta reclaim our civility. We've gotta be able to have conversations where we disagree with people and not turn that into hate. Second, I'm a theologian. In other words, I'm, I'm someone who is trained to think about God and I'm a Christian theologian in that I'm someone who places myself under the authority of the sacredness of Scripture. In other words, I'm trained to interpret this book, but more than that, I'm trained to let the Scripture interpret me. So I want you to know I'm speaking today as someone who's placed himself under the authority of Scripture that I'm not just hopefully naming my own truth, but I'm allowing God through the pages of Scripture to help me interpret who I am and what faith looks like. But I'm not just a theologian, I'm a pastor, which means I'm involved in the real lives of, of real people. And I know people whose, whose kids are, are dealing with this kind of thing, people who are dealing with this kind of thing. And I have real friends with real kids that are trying to negotiate this kind of territory. And I also happen to be a pastor to pastors. I mean, I get to travel around and speak in lots of different places and consult in lots of different places as a missiologist, helping the church stand on the frontier. And I know if we're gonna reach the next generation, and I know if we're gonna be missional people, we can't be afraid of topics like this. We gotta figure out how to navigate the terrain. But but I'm not just a, a pastor, I'm also a parent. And my kids go to public school, and my kids are in the world in such a way that They have friends and teammates that are struggling with issues of of gender, and I also look in my kids' eyes, and I see the fear in their eyes of, of not knowing how to really navigate this thing because of their fear of being canceled. But my first allegiance is as a follower of Jesus, and by that I mean someone who's trying to follow not just the words of Jesus, but the ways of Jesus. I was uh, at a dinner where there was a group of people that were launching a God dream in their life, it, and it was a Christian guy that had kind of launched something, but he had had a, a, a Jewish guy that he partnered with, and so we had had dinner, we were out by the fire at the fire pit, we were having a spiritual conversation, and the Jewish guy looks at us who are Christians, and he says, my problem with you guys as Christians is that you know Jesus as Savior, but you don't know him as rabbi. Man, I feel like that's a great sentence to just kind of talk about what I do. I'm trying to help people who accept Jesus as Savior accept him as rabbi. In other words, we don't just follow the words of Jesus, we don't just accept the works of Jesus, we gotta live in the way of Jesus. So the tone in which we have this conversation is as important as the text. The way that we handle this is as important as what we say. and I'm gonna do my best today to do that as someone who is following Jesus. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is making a transition. He's been in Galilee, but he's gonna move and head toward Jerusalem, where the focus of his life will be in the cross, to lay his life down for humanity. and In in chapter 19, he he gets tested with a question that I think is relevant for us when we have this conversation. Chapter 19, verse one, it says this. Now, when Jesus had finished the, the sayings, he went from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him and he healed them. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him. If you're reading, circle that word tested, we're gonna come back to it, by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has placed together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command, and circle that word command, one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of the hardness of your hearts, Moses allowed, circle that word, allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, It was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man and his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have, been ma- who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this teaching receive it. So we find Jesus moving toward Jerusalem in the center of what would be one of the hottest topics of his day. And it's around the issue of divorce. And Jesus is living in his own cancel culture. Literally, it's this question that has cost John the Baptist his life. I mean, you think our cancel culture is bad. It's not nearly as bad as the cancel culture of Jesus' day. And so the Bible says that the Pharisees come to Jesus in order to test him. That word test is the same word used to talk about what Satan does to Jesus in the wilderness. So in other words, the Pharisees are being used by, Jesus, by, by Satan here to bring a test in front of Jesus. And in the religious world that Jesus lives in, There are lots of different opinions about how to address this subject. There's one school of thought that basically says, you can't get a divorce unless something incredibly egregious has happened. There's another school of thought that says, if your wife burns the toast, you can divorce her. And there's everything in between. And the temptation for Jesus here is the temptation to let the confusion frame the conversation. But Jesus doesn't do that. He pushes toward clarity by resetting the conversation by going back to Eden. In other words, he reframes the conversation with a declaration of God's heart for humanity. And in declaring God's heart, he gives an invitation. He he, he addresses the brokenness, and he refuses to name the, the dysfunction as function but he invites them into a better way of life. So as we address this question, I wanna follow this same kind of idea with the way that we answer the question, is, is gender fixed? Because I don't think we can have the gender question without the bigger question of sexuality in our world today. And, and what is God's heart in regard to that? So I wanna give you four observations to kinda help us as we think about this in a Christ-like way, and by the way, the context in which I'm giving this talk is a church. In other words, I'm talking to Christians, or at least people who probably are here to kinda discover or or investigate the claims of Jesus. So I'm talking to Christians, and I wanna let you know, I wanna have this conversation in a way that it's not like us versus them. No, 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 it's God and us having this conversation. The posture isn't an us versus them kind of posture. The posture is in regard to sexual things that, 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 it, that a lot of us are broken lots of different ways and what we need to have is a God and us conversation to reframe the whole thing. So four observations. First observation is this this morning. God designed our sexuality with intentionality. When Jesus is asked this question about divorce, he goes back to the garden, and he combines Genesis chapter one, verse 27, with Genesis chapter two, verse 24. He says, I in order to really talk about this, we need to reframe the heart of God, and the heart of God from Genesis chapter one, here's what Eden looked like. There was divinity, which is God, who needed nothing and stands by himself. But the divinity, who is God, created humanity, which is us, in his image. And that humanity, according to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, was differentiated in its sexuality, male and female. For the purpose of coming together in unity, which is a covenantal marriage in which sexual intimacy would be experienced, for the purpose of creating family, which would represent God on the earth. Do you get that, that there's divinity, which is God, who creates humanity, which is us, differentiated in our sexuality for the purpose of unity to create family in such a way that we represent who God is on the planet. In other words, Genesis chapter one and two, God's creating all kinds of things, and he says it's good, it's good, it's good, but when we get to Genesis chapter two, he looks at man and says it's not good for man to be alone. And so he makes the Hebrew word there, the Azar connecto, the helper suitable to come and complement, to be with equal, both made in the image of God, to complement one another in such a way that as they come together, family is formed. And I want to place that out there because I think there is a place in everyone's heart that longs for Eden. We long for family, we long for unity. We long for our uniqueness, we long for what it really means to be human. And I think we also long for relationship with God. And the conditions of Eden are this, God says you're free. That's literally the first command, you are free, you are free, you are free to eat of any tree except one, it's called the tree of knowledge and good and evil, so the conditions of the garden are you are free to delight, to enjoy, but God says, I reserve the right to name good and evil. That you're not to name good and evil, you trust me naming good and evil, and live in delight. G.K. Chesterton said, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. See, you can't hear that ideal without also hearing the disconnect of the world that we live in. And if Genesis chapter one and two are about identifying the ideal, then Genesis chapter three is about identifying the disconnect, what's happened, because we know that this ideal of Eden has been broken. And Jesus is here calling the Pharisees back to the ideal, but the Pharisees are here trying to figure out a way to name their brokenness the ideal. They're scrambling to name their dysfunction function. And they're even using scripture to justify it. And Jesus is looking at them saying, one, your your scripture understanding is totally wrong. They say, Moses commanded us to get divorced and Jesus says, no, he didn't. He didn't command you, he permitted you. And by the way, the verse you're talking about in Deuteronomy chapter 24 has four ifs in it. And it's Moses dealing with the brokenness of his world and trying to make the best out of things that are broken. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, don't misunderstand God's acceptance with where you're at, with his affirmation for you to stay where you're at. Don't misunderstand God's permission with God's preference. In other words... He's saying you're living in a broken world that's been disconnected from God's ideal and in Genesis chapter three, here's the way that brokenness is named. In the midst of divinity, humanity starts to distrust the divinity. We think we know how to name our own goodness and that distrust is because Satan is lying to humanity. That distrust of divinity creates a corruption in humanity called sin. That corruption in humanity leads to a broken sexuality in which you find Adam and Eve hiding their nakedness and hiding from God. That broken sexuality creates a disrupted unity. They start blaming one another and that disrupted unity, by the time we get to Genesis 4, has created a shattered family where Cain kills Abel. So in other words, everything that God intended, sin upended. And so we live in a world in which God has an intentionality, but there's also a brokenness and a very big disconnect with the reality that we find ourselves in. I want to talk about that because here we're talking about divorce, but I think in the world that we live in, I want to give you a demonstration of the brokenness of our society. I read a book in preparation of this called For the Body, A guy named Timothy Tennant talks about it. He says, you can't talk about the gender issue without going back to Eden and really talking about the body and talking about the things that God created, and he does an incredible job of tracing God's heart throughout scripture. If you're looking for a deeper resource for the body, Timothy Tennant, he's a professor at Asbury and does a good job with the subject. But one of the things that uh, Tennant does in the book is he says, make no mistake, we're not three years into a five-year conversation. We're 60 years into a 100-year conversation. In other words, you can't separate this discussion of gender from the sexual revolution that we've been in the conversation of. And when it comes to the brokenness of our world, I'm going to give you a visual here, because I talk to students a lot, and so sometimes you know visual is really helpful here. Um, But I'm gonna talk to you about the way that we have a tendency to think about sex and relationships in the world that we live in today, with the brokenness that's been in conversation for quite a long time. We have a tendency to think about relationships, and especially the most intimate relationships in regard to sex, as Velcro. So we can just attach and detach and attach and detach and attach and detach. And we just kind of live our life sexually attaching and detaching. And I want to suggest to you that you were made for attachment, but not for detachment in that way. And that when it comes to relationships, when it comes to sex, sex isn't just a body thing, it's a mind and spirit thing. And marriage isn't just like a convenience, it's a a covenant. And so when you live in that kind of relationship and you attach and you try to detach, it's not like Velcro. I mean, even as you try to come apart, you can't really come apart without some of them going with you and some of you going with them. What Jesus is saying here, he's saying, you know what? You can have your certificate of divorce, but you can't really divorce yourself from somebody when you've been in that kind of relationship. Some of you that have been through divorce, you, you, know, you know that. You, you feel this. But here's the thing that I think is important for this conversation because if this is the way that we, 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 we do our relationships when it comes to attachment and detachment, attachment and detachment, then it shouldn't surprise us when we think about gender in the same way. We just attach and detach and attach and detach and attach and, attach and detach and and act like there's no ramifications for that. And so in the middle of our brokenness here, we have to realize that it's not just a a gender thing, it's a sexuality thing, and that when it comes to sexual brokenness, we as the church have not been immune to that. See, it's easy for us to get an us versus them and just kind of talk about gender and, and that kind of thing. But when it comes to sexual brokenness, when you look at the Bible from Genesis chapter three on, we're talking about things like lust, fornication, adultery, divorce, homosexuality, incest, prostitution. And the Bible is filled With that brokenness and God's people dealing with it, and as a church, we gotta recognize we haven't always been the best at solving the sexual brokenness conversation. In fact, when it comes to things like sexual brokenness, we live in a world where 50% of our marriages end in divorce, and here's the sad thing. It's the same thing in the church. We talk about leadership that is involved in scandal, but in in the church, how many sexuality and sexual scandals have plagued us? Even in our purity culture, we've placed people in bondage because they get married and they don't know how to enjoy sex. So we gotta recognize we have not done the best job as a church in really managing the brokenness of sexuality. And if we're gonna to testify to the world in any kind of way, we have to do some work on our own testimony. In other words, it's easy to say that the world is broken. What's hard to say is I'm broken. And yet all over this room today, all over churches today, we live in the brokenness of sexuality. And this includes our understanding of gender. So if we're gonna talk about this specifically for gender, there's a couple definitions that we need to be aware of. First is the definition of the way that the society is talking about sex. When we talk about sex, we're talking about the biological and physiological characteristics of what makes males and females. In other words, sex biologically is your reproductive organs. Most of the time, that's male and female. Second word that you need to understand is intersex. These are people with one or more atypical features in regard to their sexual anatomy. And for some, it means that they're born with both sexual organs. And that's a real reality that we live in. That is is a a biological fact in the world that we live in. Now most of the time, intersex people can still be classified as male or female, but but every once in a while, there is moments where it's hard to classify. Gender used to be a synonym for sex, but in today's culture, gender is defined as the socially constructed characteristics of men or women. In other words, it's your internal identity, your internal proclivity, your internal desires. So in other words, the world that we live in is separating sex and gender. Sex is what biology and your body testify to who you are, but you have an inner reality and proclivity towards something that may be aligned with that or may be different. Therefore, fourth term, gender dysphoria is the internal sense of self that doesn't match the biological self. It's someone looking in the mirror and even though their body says they're a woman, they feel like a man. Or the opposite, or or now we have, I think, last, last I count, 108 different genders. Now here's the interesting thing. I haven't heard of anyone not saying something is broken. The disagreement comes with what is broken. Is my body broken because my internal sense of identity doesn't reflect my body, or is my internal sense of identity broken because my body is something that can be trusted? Where where does my identity come from? I want to suggest to you there's a third way. It's not just your body or what's internal, but maybe there's something outside of us. Maybe God defines our identity. And that maybe God has created your body with intentionality. And that maybe when it comes to the, the, the things inside of you, it's not as easy as attachment and detachment. But that maybe the greatest longing of your heart is to hear who God says you are and to let God rule and reign over your sexuality. This brings us to our third point. What do we do with our brokenness? Number three, Jesus reclaims what we have relinquished. How do you fix brokenness? Do you fix your body or fix things that are happening internally? No, no, no. We're gonna say it's not easy, but we're gonna bring our brokenness to God. Wherever our sexual brokenness is, we're bringing it to you, God, and we're trusting you with it, and we want you to rule and reign and tell us who we are. And practically what that means when you bring it to Jesus is Jesus deals with it with truth in love, not truth or love, but truth in love. Again, when we think about this as a church, we have to recognize that our tendency has been to give truth to people, but not love and call it loving. So we shouldn't be surprised when the world gives love to people without truth and calls it truthful. In other words, one world kind of creates the other world. But Jesus doesn't let us fall into that binary. Jesus calls us to a better reality. When we bring our our brokenness to Jesus, he redeems it. It's not easy, but it's better. And here's what that means. It means that we follow him, and following him is a way of wisdom in a world that is knowledge rich and wisdom poor. Here's what I mean by that. When you think about wisdom, wisdom is general truth. When you think about Proverbs, it's a man looking back in life and saying, these are some things I've noticed to be generally true. But there's always exceptions to the rules. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he won't depart from it. It's a general truth. But there are exceptions to it. There are people who raise their kids great and their kids rebel. I can't tell you how many couples that I've counseled because their kids are rebelling and they think we must not have trained them. That general truth never meant to turn into an absolute truth. When you turn a general truth into an absolute truth, it creates legalism, which leads you in bondage. But neither do you take this exception and write the rules around the exception. That would be foolishness. We're living in a world today that has a tendency to elevate the exception and rewrite the rules around the exception. That's not the way you solve the problem. That just is a way of foolishness. I'm telling you it's gonna lead to death, destruction and despair. The way you solve the problem is you write the rules around the general truth and you deal compassionately with those that are the exception to it. You deal with truth in love. This is what Jesus does. He says, man, you gotta understand, Genesis 1, 2, it's the ideal. But I also know there are people who are in relationships in which one spouse is just kind of going in the sexual and moral way. So he says, I give you the exception for that. He also says, I know there's a group of people who who biologically, they're eunuchs, they don't fit into the Genesis 1-2 reality or they've been made eunuchs or they're people who have chosen singleness. And here's what I love what Jesus does. Jesus here doesn't exclude them from God's ideal He actually creates space for them to be in the ideal because here he says is the common denominator. Even these people he's saying are letting God when they come into the family of God rule over their sexual identity. So in other words, single isn't second rate. And if you've got a sexual brokenness struggle, you don't have to be a second rate Christian just because you have a proclivity towards something. But Jesus here is creating a different kind of family In other words, Mark chapter three, Jesus redefines family. He goes into a place and literally his mom and brothers are standing at the door because they think he's insane. They wanna take him to an insane asylum. And in that moment, he's with his disciples. Someone says, your mom and brothers are at the door. Jesus says, who are my mom and brothers? And he looks around at that group of people. He says, the people who do the will of me, the will of God with me, are my mom and my brother and my sisters. In other words, Jesus reclaims everything lost. In Genesis chapter three, he renews what it means to be be family. And in that, he creates a different kind of unity. In fact, when he talks to his, his followers, he says, the greatest testimony that you would have to the world is that you would be one just as me and the Father are one. So he's reclaiming family, which is creating a different kind of unity It's reframing sexuality to say that you can even be be single or or you can be in the middle of a struggle, but the the issue isn't about your, your brokenness. The issue is, are you allowing Jesus to name your brokenness? Are you allowing God to rename goodness? And are you trusting Jesus to reclaim what you've relinquished? Which is calling us to a greater kind of humanity and restoring our relationship with the divinity. So that brings us to our last observation, which is this, the church is today's, or it's supposed to be today's demonstration of future restoration. In other words, the church is supposed to be the place where everything lost in Eden is being reclaimed through the person of Jesus Christ. Which means that, I love the way one theologian said, he says, the best critique of the bad is the practice of the better. In other words, it's not about just saying, what's right what's right, it's about saying, no, 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 we're gonna be a different kind of community in the church whose ruler is Jesus. We're gonna trust that he knows best what it means to be human, which means in my sexuality, I'm not doing whatever I wanna do, but I'm submitting to the way of Jesus with the middle of all my brokenness. I'm bringing it to you, Jesus, and I'm letting you tell me. I'm letting you rule and reign me. How is this best to happen? And I wanna be part of your family who, again, is representing you on the earth. Now, practically, I wanna give you a tool to help you think about how to have these conversations and postures in the world because I think this is really important. We call this the kingdom charism tool. And I think if we're gonna talk about this with both tone and text, posture, and possibility, we're gonna to have to look at this. It's a tool that was inspired by H. Richard Niebuhr, um, who wrote a book called Christ and Culture. Also Tim Keller, who wrote a book called Center Church. And so here, here's the tool, we're gonna to go ahead and put it on the screen. It's a tool that is a matrix that uh, on the vertical axis is a move from uh, general grace to special grace. So general grace is God's grace for all of humanity. Special grace is that sense of God's peculiar people and then on the right and left, we're gonna move from a direct response to an indirect response when it comes to the world. And it creates four different quadrants here, and so uh, if we think about you know, postures for us as Christians, a direct response that really concentrates on special grace would lead us to a sense of fight, that, that there are things worth fighting for. And usually the priority with this is around righteousness, that there's right and wrong, and right really is important. And so there are some things worth fighting for, but if this is the only posture and it's taken to extreme, here's what it can lead to. It can lead to being dogmatic. You start to think you're right on everything and you start to think you gotta fight for everything and against everything. Second quadrant is over here. It's an indirect response with special grace. We call that a fortress and the priority there is holiness. In other words, we don't want the world to be in us. And so we create a fort or a fortress around us to make sure that the world doesn't get in us and the priority is holiness, but when taken to its extreme, it can lead to isolationism. And so you just create a Christian version of everything. You never really are involved in the world. You just kind of create Christian space. If you go up to the top, we talk about general grace with a indirect response. It's becoming a friend. And the priority here is you live with a heart of love. So you're making relationships and friendships, but if that's the only posture, it can lead to compromise. Then finally, over here on the right, in regard to direct and general grace, we call this a force for good, and the heart here is a heart of restoration. God can renew and restore all things, but if if taken alone, it can lead to a sense of naivety. Now I gotta tell you, growing up in a Christian home and in the fundamentalist kind of part of Christianity that I grew up in, our only options were in the bottom of the quadrant, fortress and fight. So we fought on everything and we were fortress around everything. And then I started reading the Bible and said, man, that's not the only options. There. You see Jesus being a friend of sinners. You see Jesus being a, a force of, 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 of for good that is different and helping people rethink things. But here's the thing. You read the Bible, you read Jesus, here's what I would suggest to you. You can see all these postures in God throughout Scripture. So if we're gonna have a Christian response, we need to use all four postures and the way you be Christian savvy is you start figuring out what's the posture that I need in whatever situation that I'm in in order to best represent who God is and that we're gonna to have to get good at using all four postures. So when it comes to gender specifically, I would suggest to you, when it comes to fight, we need to realize that there are some things that are trying to disrupt the family. These aren't necessarily people, they're principalities and powers, Paul says. We're not fighting as people, we're fighting against principalities and powers, especially when it comes to our kids. There are some places that we need to stand up and we just say, enough is enough. No, not our kids, There are some places that we need to build a fortress. Maybe even in your home, you need to think about what devices your kids are on and what availability they have. In other words, don't let TikTok form your kids' theology more than scripture and you. There might need to be some walls that we build in regard to this issue. friend. If we're gonna really follow Jesus, we gotta bridge the gap. We can't expect them to come to us. We gotta move to them. Here's some statistics for you. I want you to hear this, because we gotta form Christian response. 57% of people who identify as transgender have family members that refuse to talk to them. 50% have experienced harassment at school. 65% have suffered physical or sexual violence. 69% Have experienced homelessness, 82% have thought about suicide, and 40% have actually committed suicide. And honestly, sometimes we, as as a church, have contributed that. I remember, you know, being in nursery school at the like fundamentalist capital of Christianity, and we, we would play, I was four years old, we'd be playing superheroes. And, and, you know, we'd choose Batman, Superman. There was always one kid who was four years old who chose Wonder Woman. And in tracking his story, he grew up to be transgender, moved out of the Christian community, kind of living his own way. But But part of the issue is we didn't know how to befriend him. If you look at people who have brought their gender under Christ, one of the things that is commonly seen is that instead of just characterizing them as bad, someone has gotten close enough to hear their story. We gotta be the kind of church that gets close enough to hear stories because every story is different. And even though we're bringing the truth, we're bringing the truth in love in a way that God can redeem stories. And it's not an us versus them or a holier-than-how. We're saying God has gotta redeem our own brokenness. Finally, in regard to a force for good, the church should be that place where broken people are being made beautiful again. So here's the last picture. It's a picture of a Japanese art form called kintsugi or kintsukuroi. Kintsukuroi means golden repair. And it's a Japanese art form that actually takes pottery that's been broken and instead of just putting the pottery back together in a way that hides all the cracks, it says, no, no, the brokenness is part of the story. So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna take gold and platinum or silver, mix it with lacquer. We're gonna put it back together. And even those broken places, when, when redeemed and put together, can actually accentuate the beauty. It's better than creation, restoration, This is the church, it should be the church. It's gonna require us bringing our own brokenness before God and saying, God, we need you to reclaim what we've relinquished and you need to make us into the kind of family that can testify to your goodness so that our truth and our testimony are in line with one another and that broken people find a place to be made beautiful again. This is the church. It's the reclaiming of Eden for divinity and humanity and sexuality and unity and family is a realigned. The truth is in this room, there's probably not one person. Who, in your own decisions or in the decisions of others, has created or been caught in the collateral damage of broken relationships, broken sexuality, an East of Eden experience. And it may be leading you to distrust God and distrust his goodness for you. But the opportunity of the gospel is that that is exactly what Jesus has come. And he is the way, the truth, and the life so that we can come to the Father through him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for who you are and your spirit's work in our lives. Lord, I've done my best today to try and open your word and speak it boldly and gently, but I know that there are gaps and even potential misunderstandings. I pray that you would just fill in the gaps. Lord, we can't do in 40 minutes what is 40 years of conversation but we trust that you can do your work in us and through us. So God, will you let the places where what I said today isn't of you fall away, but will you elevate the places where what I said is you and seal them in our hearts? We love you, Lord, in your name, amen. Hey, help me to thank Dave. God bless you. Hey, listen. We would love to continue a conversation with you in the Next Step room. If you need somebody to visit with, talk to, pray over you, you want somebody to tell you how you can become a follower of Jesus today and just... Uh, just converse more about that. Right there in the next step room, if you came prepared to give your tithes and offerings, you can do so at the door on your way out. Man, I pray you go with God's blessing and an understanding of the depth of God's love for you today. God bless you. You're dismissed. Have a great week.